In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Easter is an ending and a beginning. It's an ending of the season of Lent, which we just finished. This a season of preparation, if you will. And Easter is the beginning of a new life. New life for you and I. New life for the church. New life as we go and do God's work in the world. And that new life was magnified for us all those years ago on that first Easter day when the tomb was, or the stone was rolled back and the tomb was in fact empty. That's why we gather today. And it's also why we continue to practice baptism and why we continue to celebrate the newness that comes from baptism. As we share in Christ's baptism, as we share in his death, as we share in his resurrection, as we share in the new life that comes from that moment. But the story really begins back here at the doors of the church. And folks, if you're in the front row, I apologize for this, but I'm going to wander back there. So, because it's back here in the back of the church, those doors, that symbolic point where we enter the church for the first time in many cases that our journey with Christ begins. And you can almost imagine this as being the beginning of Lent. Maybe even call it Ash Wednesday. Remember that? Seems like a long time ago. Brought Mardi Gras to a close. In the early church, Ash Wednesday symbolized the beginning or the enrollment of catechumenate, namely those who were in training to be baptized. Military men and women, please forgive me, but it was a, the beginning of a Christian boot camp. <laughs> Although I'm sure they didn't have heavy packs on their backs and they didn't have to do organized marches at 5 a.m. They probably were aroused periodically in order to get out and participate in the Christian community to make sure some of those who didn't have or went without had some sustenance that was necessary. The Acts of the Apostles tells us that one of the things that the early church did was make sure that the widows were cared for. So those who had, didn't have any means were cared for by these catechumenate and others who were involved in the life of the early church as it developed. But as this catechumenate prepared for baptism, they moved closer to the font which was promised on Easter Day. But as you can imagine, in the early church, and we've all seen the pictures of Jesus' baptism and what have you, we know that he wasn't baptized in a font like that. And we also know that in the first few centuries that wasn't the case either. We know that they were dunked, literally dunked, in a river. And that if you've ever seen uh, a, a full immersion baptism, it's in the name of the Father and of the Son. And typically, Folks get pretty zealous on that last one. And the Holy Spirit, you know, they hold them down for a second. And the intention is just that, that the person's going to pop out of the water, gasping for air, gasping for the breath of new life that comes from that. 
A lot of times, liturgically speaking, in architecture, you'll see a font actually, and sometimes even a full immersion font, right at the door of the church. The prayer book tells us the font is meant to be put in a place that is um, highly visible for the entire congregation. Hence that spot where we have to practically trip over it to get onto the altar, and the high altar is so appropriate because we should trip over the font. We should trip over our baptismal promises. We should be reminded of our baptismal promises every time we walk into the church and every time we approach God's holy altar because that's what we are prepared for. The practice of a font for baptism probably didn't come around until the church began to move forward with some of its evangelism into the northern part of Europe and what have you. Um, Because let's think about it for a minute. It wouldn't be very welcoming for the brand new catechumenate to baptize them in 30 degree water in northern England as they burst out of the water with hypothermia gasping for air. So more practical and more pragmatic ways of making sure that the baptismal tradition was practiced were created. One of those was the font. One of those is that sort of a spurging, if you will, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's not kid ourselves also. It's a lot easier to control that as well, a lot less dripping around, you know. But it was that... That, that practice, that getting ready, those 40 days and 40 nights of preparation which led the new catechumenate to the font. It led them to the font as they prepared and they learned those essential things, those things which we're going to say in just a minute when we renew our own baptismal covenant. When we renew our own baptismal covenant by saying, yes, yeah. I will strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. Or yes, I will follow in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and in the prayers. Those are part of those essential teachings that while the words may have been different in the first, second, third century, even around the fifth century with the iconoclastic controversy and all the way on through the Crusades and what have you, those words that we say today in just a few minutes still mean just that. Yes, Lord, I will. Yes, Lord, I will participate with you. I will join with you in Christian ministry. I will practice my faith. So the catechumenate was prepared, and they were brought to this spot, and and probably in the early church, it would have been done on the Easter vigil last night, but probably not at 7 o'clock on a Saturday. They probably would have started around midnight, and and, and they probably wouldn't have cut any readings. They probably would have done all seven of the readings prescribed by the prayer book, although we didn't have a prayer book in those early days, so that's irrelevant. It would have been a long service, would have been a huge service, and there would have probably been a procession of folks in white robes, very similar to ordination, and at a font, or at a river, those folks would have entered into baptism, and they would have entered a new life. That's the beginning I'm speaking of. When I talk about Easter being an ending and a beginning, 
the ending is the end of the old self, which we packed up during Lent. The beginning is here with the waters of baptism as we begin anew. And as I said, we should trip over the font. It should knock us over every time we walk in the church because it continues to be a beginning for us, a new beginning each and every time we enter the church, a new beginning as we enter the altar and approach the altar with outstretched hands to receive his body and his blood and to be recharged, refreshed for ministry, refreshed to represent his love to the world, refreshed to begin anew a ministry that he calls us to. Easter is about the ending of our old selves and the beginning of something new. It is for the catechumenate that would be baptized. It is for you and me as we make our own reaffirmation of faith and as we approach the altar with outstretched arms for the body of Christ and the bread of heaven. On this Easter day, as always, I invite you to the altar. I invite you to the font. Reach in. Make the sign of the cross. Touch the water. Touch the font. It is a new beginning for all of us as a community of faith here at St. Andrew's Cathedral, but as individuals as we carry the message of his love to the world and we look for ways that we can continue to represent his love to the world. Today is the first day. Today is the first day. And we join with all those who on that very first Easter day were amazed that the stone was rolled back and the tomb was empty, and that we, even today, still have the opportunity for new life, new hope, and recreation. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.